You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio, we are very fortunate to have two wonderful guests from Karen Treatment Centers. We have Cheryl Nepper, who is the clinical director and uh, vice president. Vice president, yes. I knew there was a title there um, for treatment services for Karen. Uh, you spend most of your time in Pennsylvania, correct? That is correct, but I do travel a little bit here to but Atlanta. But you get to come to Atlanta. And then yeah. we have um, Dean Monteleone, who is here with us from the Karen Atlanta uh, facility, which specializes in a little bit more of a limited population than you do up north, limited in terms of age, but not in terms of drama and not in terms of challenges. So thank you both for being here. I think this is a really timely discussion. One of the big questions that parents often have and family members and teachers and community members is when when is this a problem? When is the change in behavior or the increase in behavior, a normal part of the development and the growing process for a young person, and when should we start to be worried? When is this moving into risky behavior? And that's our our topic and our challenge for today is, is to look at that. I think this is an important time of year. Often, kids have been away to school. They've been away to college or... Um, even if they're at home going to school, grandparents may come or aunts and uncles may come for the holidays, and they look at this young person and they are somewhat taken aback because not only may their behavior have changed, but their physical look may have changed. And it raises questions within the family. Is this normal? And should we just congratulate the child in developing some individual expression? Or is this really a big problem? And is this something that we should take more action on? I would imagine that you get some of those questions. We do. We get quite a few. Um, it, what, I, what I try to talk with uh, families about is, is to look for two things, really. A pattern. And when you start to see a pattern of behavior over time, it starts to move out of that experimentation range. Um, usually when kids are starting to experiment with drugs and alcohol or, or even risky behaviors, there, there's usually a natural consequence that happens. Um, might be some poor decisions made. Maybe the law gets involved. Maybe it's just as simple as a, as a rough hangover the next day. That's often enough for most kids to change and stop and slow down that behavior. When it starts to become a problem, they continue experimenting and they continue going um, and sometimes even advancing even more. Maybe they're broadening their use or maybe they're going a little bit deeper more frequently and that's where it really gets concerning because it's important to intervene and take a look at that as quickly as you can before it starts to get out of hand. So let's back up a minute, Dean, and talk a little bit about your background and how you came to Atlanta and and why you have this level of expertise on answering this question that we've posed today. So can you share with us a little bit about your background? Sure, sure. Um, I first got into the field about... 
gosh, I guess it was about 20 years ago now, um, in uh, in Pittsburgh. I started working with addictions um, in an outpatient center. Um, I began originally as a partial therapist, which is a, a day program. Uh-huh. And um, started with adults. Uh, at one point, moved over to adolescents and, and teens, and then worked with families. And then eventually kind of made my way all across the continuum of care. Uh, some inpatient, some outpatient. Um, very brief period of detox, and then went back to... Uh, residential treatment. Um, and then about, uh, guess what, about six, seven years ago, I mm-hmm. uh, had the opportunity to move over to Karen in, in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And um, at that point, we started a, an aftercare program to help help patients and families uh, once they leave treatment. Um, they're doing a wonderful job getting into treatment, making right. some changes, really looking at some very difficult issues while they're in that safe safe environment. And what we saw was that there was a big challenge once they got home. And once they had to start applying all those things that they had learned and were trying to do it in in real life, really. Uh-huh. And so we started a program to help patients and families really just navigate life and, and honoring the recovery principles that they had started during the course of treatment. Uh, so we did that for many years. And then uh, just very recently this year, uh, an opportunity had come up with the, the recovery community down here in Atlanta. Uh, Karen has a really well-developed um, alumni base. Um, adults, young adults, mm-hmm. families, uh, tremendous community down here. And uh, part of what we were looking at was offering services to help them uh, at an outpatient level. And uh, one of the things that we looked at, uh, Dr. Margolis had had a, p- a program specifically for teens and, and their families. And through some collaboration, we were able to work together. And as he moved towards sort of the retirement phase of his right. work, uh-huh. I had come in to kind of help with some of the clinical operations. And uh, in doing so, we were able to expand a lot of our services to not just help the teens, but also their families and the young adults, and then also even you know further adults, your more traditional adults. Um, in a few different ways, whether they're early on in the spectrum or across the uh, scope of treatment, um, or even afterwards as they get into alumni and, and are, are back trying to navigate those early days of recovery. So it's, it's, it's been a really nice adventure and shift down here to Atlanta, um, and so I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Well, we're, we're glad you're here, and we're glad that you could join us. Cheryl, would you give us some, I know you've been a guest on the show before, and our listeners may be very familiar with you, but I think your history and, um, and your expertise is important so that when we begin to talk about the, the nuts and bolts of this topic, they understand they're hearing from some real experts. So. Sure, and, and thank you, Dr. Blank, for having me back on your show and inviting Dean to be a part of this as well. It's really a privilege to be here this evening. Uh, I started my career 33 years ago. And 33 years ago, she I was started, just a, a, uh, a yes. young, young child. I was, I was a teeny dopper <laughs> myself. Since we have this topic, this evening. <laughs> anyway, 33 years ago, I started my career working in uh, mental health, and in particular, realized very quickly that almost every patient that I saw in an inpatient residential psychiatric facility had a dual diagnosis, meaning that many of them were compromised not only by their mental health illness, but also compromised by a substance use disorder. And so I feel as though I've been in this uh, arena of treating (laughs) patients, and I've treated patients from childhood to probably the oldest age I ever had was 102, believe it or not. 102. 102 for depression. And naturally, I imagine at 102, you would have a little bit of depression. Yes. Anyway, I spent 20 years working in a hospital-based mental health and drug and alcohol facility, Uh, was there 
primary therapist. I have a background as an art therapist. I'm licensed as a professional counselor. I'm licensed as a certified multiple addictions therapist. I'm certified as a sex addiction therapist. And I came to Karen uh, now going on 11 years ago and have done a variety of things for Karen. It's been an incredible journey. And um, like Dean, I've taken on the challenge of (laughs) branching out not only from the Pennsylvania campus, but out here in uh, the Atlanta region Mm -hmm. to help support Atlanta and our alumni and and those that truly need help. Uh, I've had a specialty in adolescence for a long time. Um, That really was probably the majority of my career. Mm -hmm. So um, this is not a foreign topic to me. But it is foreign sometimes, I think, to some of our listeners. Absolutely. And it's such a mystery. I wish that when kids were born, they had a little manual or at least a tag, you know, attached that says don't remove under penalty of law that said, okay, these are the, these are the milestones. These are the problems. These are the things that you're going to encounter. And, and they don't. And just because you've had one child doesn't mean the next one is going to be exactly the same and the same family and the same parenting and the same household is going to be exactly the same for that one. So there's so many times that I think family members don't want to overreact. They don't want to start throwing out labels and running people off to treatment. On the other hand, I think there's a great fear that people have that when they begin to see changes in how their teen is dressing or the people that they're hanging out with, there becomes a lot of concern. Is this a phase or is this not? And I think, Dean, you're, you're talking about that there is more of a pattern, mm-hmm. that it's not a one-off, okay, everybody can do stupid stuff, even as adults. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. But um, for most young people, when they fail the test or they get called into the principal's office or they get pulled over for um, a traffic violation, that usually gets their attention. And it doesn't mean they're not going to do more stupid things in the future, but it often um, is something that allows them to step back and say, hmm, okay, maybe this isn't working for me. So it's that pattern that I think is important. Well, I think the pattern is really is really a differentiator because when we talk about addiction, we're really talking about a disease of progression. Yes. And when you see a young person uh, who dabbles in experimentation and can then stop, um, that's not necessarily true for all, as Dean has said. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks who have a history of addiction in their household are four times more susceptible to addiction in their own life. We also understand that brain chemistry has a lot to play. Temperament has a lot to mm-hmm. play. Personality development has a lot to play. The environment in which one grows up has a lot to play. That whole biopsychosocial aspect of the individual. But one of the things that we see with adolescents versus what you might see with adults 
is they'll try anything. <laughs> you know, I used to call them garbage heads. Um, they would start with cigarettes. Cigarettes continue to be the gateway. Mm-hmm. Um, today, what we see is 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 a move away from your traditional cigarettes to your e-cigarettes. Correct. Your vaping, and we see a lot of CBD oil, which is a derivative of marijuana. Right. Oil. And so there's a lot going on there that has changed the landscape of understanding our teens. It's a gateway for them. But they'll try anything, and they'll quickly progress from what is smoking to any pills that might be in a grandparent's uh, medicine cabinet or parents and try them. Mm -hmm. Years ago, it used to be called farming not F-A-R-M-I-N-G, but P-H-A-R-M-I-N-G, where they'd put all kinds of pills in a bowl and pick it and take it. And if you think about that risky behavior of not knowing what you're ingesting and how dangerous that is and how deadly that can be, that's the impulsivity of an adolescent. Mm -hmm. And we have all had that impulsivity as adolescents, but some more to an extreme. And that's really what we see is despite consequences... They continue to up the ante. And that's the more the acting out teen. But then there's the acting in teen, the one that becomes much more depressed, isolated. As we would say with an adult, a closet drinker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You'll see that with the disenfranchised adolescent where they'll retreat. And I think part of the risk with some of the, the chemicals that get experimented with that we have to recognize in, in our culture today is that the potency of some of these, if it's medications or if it's, you know, kind of street chemicals. Yeah, marijuana um, today. It, marijuana especially. You know, the marijuana today compared to, I'll even just say 15, 20 years ago, right. is radically different. The potency alone is up probably two or three times more potent than, in the, say, it was in the 90s. And the other piece that we have to recognize is that marijuana itself has, has become a legitimate business. So the the chemists, the the growers, the the scientists are are fairly well advanced, and it's not just old school marijuana that some of these kids, particularly in in high schools, are experimenting with. It's marijuana with a certain aspect chemically amplified or a certain piece laced into it, and that unknown factor is incredibly dangerous. It is. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about how do you know when you should start to worry. Please stay tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... 
You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and today with me we have Dean Monteleone and we have Cheryl Nepper. Cheryl comes to us from Pennsylvania, Karen, um, at the headquarters of the Karen uh, Foundation and the Karen uh, Treatment Centers. And Dean is here with us now from Pennsylvania. Um, transplanted to Atlanta and overseeing the outpatient programming and the alumni programming here in Atlanta. They're both very um, skilled as well as have a lot of experience in this topic. And right before the break, we were talking about marijuana. And we were talking about that this is is certainly not the marijuana from my day. And... um, it's certainly not the marijuana from even my older children's day. This is a whole new thing. And I, I hear this, and I'm sure you probably have too. Families will say, well, it's just marijuana. Mm-hmm. Not recognizing, um, yeah, this is not the marijuana you think we're dealing with, and this is not going to be potentially as easy uh, to untangle oneself from it. So, um, so if there is um, a situation where a child has been using marijuana and the parents have found paraphernalia or they've actually caught them smoking or they smell it on their clothes or, heaven forbid, the, the child's been arrested, um, what should the parent do? I would say one of the first things to do is is to reach out to a professional and and get the family in for an assessment. This is this has become such a complex issue over the years that I know we're, we're kind of talking about marijuana here, but one of the things that also feeds into this is is it may not be just marijuana, right? You know, the, the teen may may be willing to kind of share, oh yeah, mom, dad, I I always smoked a few joints here and there, but they may forget to mention uh, they also had a few drinks and tried a few pills or uh, had this other thing they don't even know what it was that they got from a friend and each thing that sort of adds to that adds a little bit of a layer of complexity to it Mm -hmm. Um, because one of the things at a certain point along sort of the continuum between experimentation to social use then problematic use and eventually you can make your way all the way to to full-blown addiction is that the the use starts to serve a different purpose 
you know, originally it's often to just see what it's like. Uh-huh. And uh, as we shared a little bit earlier before the break, the, those consequences usually, when they're negative, uh, will stop a person from continuing to use. Right. They don't expand and move further. So one of the things that's helpful in talking with a professional is that they can work with the child um, or the patient and the family to really get sort of underneath what's what's at the surface. You know, what's being disclosed is what the was kind of at the surface level, but a clinician can talk in a way that the teen and or the young adult would be willing to open up and share a little bit more. And that's really what we need to get to because that's sort of what's driving a lot of the behaviors. You know, at this point, particularly early in life with teens and young adults, the drug use is almost kind of, or, or alcohol use, is kind of on, on top. It's the emotional underpinnings that we need to see what's happening and so that we can work with it. And, and that will come out through, through a very thorough evaluation with people. So sometimes it's, it's that this is, uh, unfortunately, some um, maybe poorly thought out, but normal behavior. Mm-hmm. But like you say, it may be an addiction problem, there, but there may be some emotional uh, components as well that may be a primary problem or or secondary to their to their use. Absolutely. It is not uncommon in this population. And as a matter of fact, in many of the adults that we treat in our residential programs or our young adult programs, that about 85% of the folks who enter into addiction treatment have a coexisting mental health condition or mm-hmm. issue. And it's a chicken and egg routine, which came first. Sometimes through a thorough evaluation and assessment, you might find that the young person was uh, diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. This is a very common scenario with teens. Um, Put on Adderall. Right. Became addicted to Adderall. um, Started selling the Adderall to friends at school started to get into trouble for that, gravitated onto other substances. And after a while, the addiction takes over. You wonder what's happened to the mental health piece, and you end up with kids who who sometimes look very oppositional defiant. Mm -hmm. And so a thorough assessment is going to get underneath that. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I think is really, really important when you assess is that this is a disease that affects the family. So not only are you assessing the individual who's coming in who might have the identified patient with the problem, you might find that there's other members in the household that might need some education, right? Mm -hmm. may also need to be intervened upon, and may need to be recommended themselves for an evaluation. So we try to be very thorough in our approach and very holistic in our approach. We also know that we also we want to find what strengths the individual has. So coming from a strengths-based approach yes. to assessment is mm-hmm. huge with, with any population, but especially with young folks. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes the teens that I um, had the privilege of treating over the years were teens that were at one point very engaged in sports, mm-hmm. very engaged engaged in the arts and when the disease of addiction or mental illness came to play all of that went out the window that's another sign and symptom that oftentimes you'll see happen way before you might Mm -hmm. see the side effects of a substance is that they retreat from the things that they loved they change the 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 social network that's around them so when we assess we look at that we also want to look at their history of medications as I mentioned with ADHD, if they were seeing a psychiatrist and they were put on a medication, when did that start? How early back can you remember 
um, behavior changes in in your in your loved one or you mm-hmm. yourself if you're the person being assessed. Mm-hmm. When did it all start? Kind of a timeline approach to to assessment and evaluation, and then maybe you can talk a little bit about what do we do after that once we've done an assessment and we rule out that maybe it's experimentation and they need education as mm-hmm. the base level. Say it's not someone who has education, but it's someone who we define as having a true substance use disorder that's progressing. Mm-hmm. What do we do next? Well, it, it, there's so many options available today, and, and I will share uh, that's one of the things I'm very, very grateful for. When I first start, started in the field, we had maybe a few options right. for, for patients and families to, to kind of work through some of these issues that we're talking about. And they were often very fractured. Yes. yes. Very fractured. Yes. You'd walk in one door and you'd be sent to this one, and what would happen is the patient and the family would become frustrated, and before you know it, Nothing right. was changing. Well, you've got to go get detoxed. We can't treat your depression. Exactly. Well, we can't treat. We can't detox you because you're so depressed. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yes. So we had few options, and what options we had were very splintered and didn't talk to each other, and just kept passing the patient and the family off. So that's changed, thank yeah. goodness. Yes, very, Absolutely. very happy for that. So now we can take a much more collaborative approach with, mm-hmm. with within a, an organization as a treatment team and then also even with outside providers as well. It's it's invaluable to be able to kind of build off of the relationships that, you know, maybe a patient or family has worked with their, their pediatrician, maybe their psychiatrist. Maybe they've, they've been in therapy before as a, as a family or as a person. You know, there's there were there were gains made through each of those events, mm-hmm. and it's helpful to bring all that together, because the reality is is that's part of the person's story, and it's it's part of what's led them up to where sort of they stand today. And after the assessment process, what we're able to do is really see when the patient was or the potential patient was doing well, what was happening. You know, what were they doing that they were able to manage and cope with, with life, with stress, with peer pressure, with whatever it was, in a healthy way? And where did it start to go awry? Where did they start to look at other options? Or where did they start to lean too heavily on a chemical? Or where did their maybe depression, their anxiety, really just overwhelm them and it became too, too much? Um, where did the family system start to kind of break down the communication? Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe the support got sort of misaligned. You know, we can see that early on you know, through through the process. Um, once we've identified that, then we can start connecting people to the resources to help with each of those individual needs. You know, if a family's has struggled with communication through all of this, well then we can work on that. You know, it's a it's a it's a it's a skill which can be learned or relearned really for most families. You know, if a if a patient is struggling with depression and kind of up and down and they're, mm-hmm. they're able to manage it some days but some, not some other days, there's a wonderful array of things to help with that. It could be medication, could be specific counseling, um, st- strategies of different counseling, um, chemical use as well. For some families, it's it's really just learning about what is out there now. You know, what does the landscape look like when we talk about alcohol? What does that mean? You know, what does that mean around access to it? Uh, we talk about marijuana. What does that mean? How accessible is it for, for kids in high school, uh, for kids in college? Um, you know, the many, many different medications that can be abused. You know, some of the harder street drugs. What is the landscape that we're in today? It, through education, we can teach people what that is, so at least we know where we stand. Mm-hmm. As the disease progresses or behaviors kind of devolve, you know, or again, communication kind of breaks down, now we start looking at treatment options. 
and that comes in many forms. I mean, there's there's outpatient options, your your traditional, I'll call it talk therapy, where you sit and, and talk with one directly for maybe an hour or so. Uh, you have your traditional family therapy, where everyone comes in and, and we learn how to be a family again. You know, to say the difficult things out of love, not out of anger, fear, uh, uh, panic, etc. Um, there's group formats, which for this population that we're describing, teens and young adults, is invaluable. Mm-hmm. Hearing something from my peer, if I'm if I'm 16 years old, 18 years old, 20, 22 years old, any, anything in there, has has a certain weight to it that can't really come from mom and dad. It can't right. come from uh, really probably any adult. You know, the, <laughs> um, it's it just it pierces through a lot of that resistance that that many parents often see with teens and young adults, and it does so in a way that it it rings true. They get it. So a group format for for teens and young adults, I would argue, is is almost imperative. Mm-hmm. You, you, right. you need it because yeah. the value of the peer group at that age outweighs almost everything else. I would argue, um, and even the group format takes different forms. You know, you can take a group that maybe meets once a week for a little bit. Um, that's going to be on the early end, a lot of just sort of early education and processing and helping the person kind of get some insight into their behaviors, their choices, and then also the, the positive and negative consequences that come with that. Um, for others that are maybe a little bit more evolved and deeper into the process, you look at programs that meet a few times a week. Um, usually those programs will almost always, or I should say should, incorporate the families as a part of it. Because this is, you know, as, as Cheryl, I think you mentioned, you know, this is a family disease. Mm-hmm. You know, when one person is ill in a family, it affects everyone. And if you can accept that logic, then we all need to heal from it. You know, we all need to recognize that we are affected by it. Good, bad, left, right, that part doesn't matter. We need to be able to openly talk. Um, as you continue on, there's there's longer programs that are, that are outpatient. And then we have, you know, your traditional residential programs that, again, take many, many different forms depending on what the person needs. And I think that's a really important thing that we need to talk more about is how do you individualize, how do you know what they need. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about when do you need to worry. Please stay tuned. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare 
and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio, we have with us Cheryl Nepper from uh, Karen, Pennsylvania, and she is Vice President of Clinical Services and uh, oversees not only the Pennsylvania campus, but a variety of other locations, including here in Atlanta. And we have Dean Monteleone, who is um, Clinical Director here in Atlanta for the Outpatient and Alumni Service is very, very important. We did talk a bit about assessment and about outpatient services, and um, and then you gave us a nice out, outline of the variety of different places and um, locations and levels of care. Um, I think that one of the things I see over and over again is that most of the time, people are in a crisis when they're looking for a solution. It. I wish it could be a really thought out, well um, studied. I mean, we spend a whole lot more time picking out a pet for the family or buying a new car. Often we've heard somebody in the Kroger talking about a wilderness program that their kid went to. And we don't even know this person. We were just behind him in the line. Sometimes it is not always the best entree into how do I know what, what do I need? Because people are panicked and mm-hmm. because it often isn't openly talked about what do you do when your family's in trouble? What do you do when your child is struggling? People don't always know where to go, but the important part of a good assessment, regardless of how much panic there is, unless the young person is truly suicidal, where today we have to absolutely do something, or they've just overdosed and they're in an ICU, and today we have to do something. That's a a different um, scenario, although that level of panic is often what happens when Mm -hmm. the mom washes the jeans and finds, you know, the marijuana pipe in the the kid's Mm -hmm. pocket. Um, But if you get a really good assessment, Mm -hmm. then it's going to be much clearer maybe not to the family, but to the um, assessment professional, what this person needs. And we call this individualized treatment. And I know everybody says they do that, but what does that mean to you, and how, how does that really look? Well, one of the things that means to me is is part of my goal, when I do evaluations with, with patients and families, is part of my hope is that they leave that conversation knowing exactly what it was I identified or, or we identified as a group as the problem areas. Uh-huh. What I've matched up resource-wise, whether that's, that's treatment, education, all the different options we went through, to each of those problems and how to access them. So there's a, there's a level of responsibility, I feel, on the clinician to be able to educate the family and help them understand what exactly it is they're recommending and, and why. Um, you know, when we talk about different treatment centers and programs, I mean, some are very diverse, some are very narrow. Right. And it's important, you know, to select a program, if this is where your family's headed, one that's going to meet all of or at least most of, you know, the needs mm-hmm. that are most pressing. And that's very difficult to do if you're not... If this is your first time sort of entering this conversation as a family, 
Because you're right. I mean, we don't talk about addiction. We don't talk about resource options. We don't we don't talk about recovery as a as a culture. Um, certainly better today than than 20 years ago. But we still have some work to go. Right. And, you know, as a family member, when you're in that scared state, like, like you mm-hmm. mentioned, you know, you pull the wash and you see the, you know, the bag of marijuana or you see some pills you don't recognize and, you know, panic rises up. You know, par- I think parents get that part. They get the danger right. part. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The, the second, Kids don't, but the parents do. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, the second half is, okay, well, what do we do now? And, and this is where it's important to really kind of look through all the different areas that need attention and match them up and make sure wherever it is that family kind of goes to, treatment centers, uh, residential, outpatient, whatever, it meets up to those needs. You know, so, for example, you mentioned wilderness programs. Those are fantastic for a very specific set of behaviors. Correct. You know, you have dual diagnosis programs, you know, that are able to address the chemical use alongside the mental health issues. And what I'm going to add sort of the third piece is that when the two coalesce and are aggravating one another, mm-hmm. it's that it's that chicken mm-hmm. and the egg it's that Cheryl brought approach, up. Yeah. You know, there's there's a family component that has to be a part of whatever they do. Thank you. you. Know, Very important. It, it just it has to be a part of it. If it's if it's not a regular kind of weekly or, or active part, then something else needs to to happen. Um, I think there's there's underlying issues that for many teens and young adults that uh, more recently has, has come to our attention that there's there's there are traumatic effects to being immersed in the drug and alcohol culture prematurely. You know, we, we talk about, you know, uh, Cheryl, you gave an example of a, some young person who might start dealing. That's a very different culture yes. than some people are used to. That's scary, that's frightening, that has incredibly heavy consequences, and that's traumatic for a 15-year-old, 17-year-old. You know, because the reality is, is, you know, you can't go to Kroger, you know, and get a, a bag of marijuana. You can't go there and get this. So you have to find alternative means to sustain your use. That puts you into a whole different world with risks and dangers to it. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I think another part of an important treatment program when we look at individualized care is as you listen to someone's story and how they got to wherever they are today, look for elements that they've they've put themselves in scenarios that are incredibly risky, dangerous, potentially traumatic, because those are wounds that take a long time to heal. You know, we can address the substance issues, you know, through through abstinence, that'll help. Uh, the mental health issues will also take some time to work through. Some of those deeper traumatic wounds are going to take even longer. And I find it's important when, when talking with families to help them understand the timeline of this. You know, when, when, when we, just as humans, you know, when we're in that panic state, we kind of want quick solutions that, that solve the problem right away. That doesn't really work here right. in this conversation. <laughs> that actually can make it worse. Yes. You know, with, yeah. if, if we walk into the conversation and say, you know, Susie's been using for maybe a year, year and a half or so, and we expect her to change those habits in a, in a week, that's incredibly unrealistic mm-hmm. for, for everyone involved. You know, the reality is, is, you know, if you spend that much time, a few months, a couple of years or longer for some, it's going to take probably about the same amount of time to unravel those habits mm-hmm. and build new ones. You know, and this is where treatment can help because it can help accelerate the process, but it's not magical. You know, yeah. it, this is not an overnight change because you know, the susceptibility to go back to old behaviors is incredibly high because at a certain point it becomes comfortable. Mm-hmm. It becomes the norm for the person. Granted, it's an unhealthy norm, but it but is it's their familiar. norm. Mm-hmm. I would also add to what you just said, Dean, and and great, great discussion around that is that 
when someone is in a crisis mode, it's about walking alongside them mm-hmm. in that crisis and, and instilling in them that this may be the time to do something. Because once the crisis mm-hmm. passes, life goes back to whatever it is, and it's that comfortable mm-hmm. piece. So oftentimes what we find is that if someone comes in the crisis, they may need a different level of care. Outpatient mm-hmm. may not necessarily be right. what they need. They may need to exit from the environment in which they're surrounded by because they're, the progression of, of the use has really gotten mm-hmm. out of control. Um, I also think that it's it's important to note that many times we'll ask the family to get their own therapist through this process because it pulls on their heartstrings. Um, once that young person comes back into their household, they tend to walk on eggshells, you know, fearing that because maybe they woke up and they were blurry-eyed looking and glossy looking that right away they're, you know, looking in their eyes, did you use, and the 50 million questions come. And that's all natural. That's all mm-hmm. natural. It's interesting when you said, you know, does a child come with a tag? I've Parents often said, I wish there was a manual for this. Well, there really isn't a manual for how to raise our children or how to how to manage when these things come up other than I I think it starts with reaching out. You've got to make that call. Mm -hmm. No matter how difficult it may be, you need to make that call. And so our job here in Atlanta, Karen Atlanta, is really if anybody is struggling, we are one call away from an assessment. An assessment starts that process. And then, as Dean chronicled, we'll do that level of care mm-hmm. and what do you need. But at the same time, we're going to ask that family to jump in there and to and to start to, to look at what it is they need. One of the things that we also provide here in the Atlanta area is we have two parent support groups. And what we find is, is sometimes those parents who don't have a child that's in treatment we will recommend a parent support group because their child may be at that early level of experimentation where being with other parents might help them better understand where they are in in the scheme of things. And we also have the parent support groups for those folks who have had kids who have been in many different treatment centers beyond Karen or an outpatient as a place to get support. Because really it's not about it's not about these parent support groups being focused on what am I going to do about my child? It's really about how am I going to imagine ima- uh, manage my emotions around this? How how might I have to look at how I'm communicating differently. Um, and so they've been a great adjunct yes. to what it is that we do. A great adjunct. And and lastly, I'd say it's an investment. So when families come to see us, they'll often say, well, you know, my, my young person is 13 or 14 years old. They might be, you know, um, we want to get them into treatment and we want them fixed. And to Dean's point, it's it's a process. You know, it's a process. It's not that black and white. And we as clinicians have got to start there with families understanding that. That today's the day to make that investment to get your kid well. Because if you intervene when someone is 13 or 14 years old or 15 or 16 or 17, you have a better chance. Yes. You have a better chance um, to change the course of direction that they might find themselves on. Also, the adolescent's brain is still developing. So the sooner that you can get in there and hopefully get recovery on board, the more likely their brain is going to be healthy. 
and the sooner you can get in there, the less damage mm-hmm. that the, the chemicals Absolutely. and the addictive behaviors can actually do to the brain because this is a progressive disease. Mm-hmm. And if they truly have the disease of addiction and not poor coping skills that included drug mm-hmm. use or a depression that was situational because they were being bullied. If they truly have this disease, this is a chronic disease. We can't cure it. One episode of care is not going to do it. And yeah. just like being treated for diabetes, you got to manage that your whole life. Yeah. And that's one of the things that the person needs to learn and that the family needs to learn they're going to have to be a part of that too and they're going to have to deal with their own feelings around that and it is a real difficult thing and the family everybody needs to be on board and needs to understand how to be the healthiest people they can be we're going to take a break when we come back we're going to talk about how how do we do our very best especially during this time of year when people are so stressed so please stay tuned Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and this is America's Web Radio. Today we've been having a very um, informative and useful conversation with two folks who have a wealth of knowledge uh, from care and treatment centers. We have Cheryl Nepper, who is the clinical, the Vice President of Clinical Services for Karen, and um, I'm going to give you the website um, for you to look at and also um, a phone number so you can reach um, uh, Dean Monteleone, who is the clinical director here in Atlanta. So for those of you who don't know about Karen, um, they have locations in Pennsylvania and Atlanta. You've heard about those, but there are locations in Florida. Um, there are some outpatient programs and outreach programs in other cities and other states. So very important, if you just want to know about Karen, let me spell it for you. It's C A R O N. That's C, Karen, C-A-R-O-N dot org. And this will give you access not just to the website about Atlanta programs, but to the other programs, the um, the long-term recovery programs for families. Educational Educational programs. um, All kinds of very good information. Karen does a lot of research, and they have on that website access to the research studies that they're doing Mm -hmm. about all kinds of addiction-related problems, and and connections. Um, if you want to reach Dean himself and talk about uh, the Atlanta program, um, you can dial 678-543-5711. 678-543-5711. And I'll give those numbers before we um, end today, so... Get a pen and paper if you don't have them now. I think the important thing is, is if you're reaching out, you don't know what to do, you can call Karen, you can check the website, you can reach out to Dean, and if they're not the right fit, or you're, you live in Timbuktu, they can help you, because they're, um, what I like about them, they're a not-for-profit, um, many years, over 50 years. 60-year history, as 60 a matter of fact, we just, uh, this month. This mm-hmm. month. Mm-hmm. Um very important. Their goal is to get people where they need to be, not into their program exclusively. So they, they are a great resource and, and can be very, very helpful. So right before we were talking about this um, um, the idea this is a chronic illness, that this is not um, a one and you're done, that an episode of care, if you have the disease of addiction, if you have a chronic mental illness, these are things that you're going to need services and, and support, not just as the person, but as the family. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's part of the education process for everybody, I think. Mm-hmm. And this time of year, people are really stressed and um, and worried, and they are often seeing loved ones for the first time in a while, and this can create a lot of stress. So, what would you suggest for people to support them through the holidays, minimize relapse? Lots of things in that that question. <laughs> that was a big question. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think there's there's quite a few things families can do to help uh, kind of minimize the minimize the risk. Because um, because you're right. Oftentimes they're maybe they're seeing if it's a college age student they haven't seen them in three four year or three four months. Um, you know, high school uh, sometimes they haven't seen family members in maybe a year or since summertime. 
And one of the things is to just recognize sort of who's who's coming to the family event or the holiday event and and being aware of what they're going to bring to to that day, to that moment, to that or maybe it's a week or so. Um, you know, our, our families are all often diverse, and we have kind of sort of our own personalities within the families, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> for, for for good and for bad. Um, it's worth recognizing just kind of who's coming and what they're going to bring. If if you're the family, if your parents um, are, and you're the host for that particular holiday, remember you're the host. You're the parents. You can set the guidelines for what the expectation is for this event. You know, uh, alcohol is a very common one that's integrated into many, many holiday traditions. Yes. And as parents and as families, sometimes I think we forget we can not include it also. You know, you can you have the opportunity, and, and I think this is invaluable, particularly if you have a patient or loved one that's that's early on in the sobriety yes. process, yes. that you have a chance now to, to start a new tradition, you know, a, a new... A holiday celebration, mm-hmm. a new method of doing things within the family, and what better unit to start with than your core family? You know, to set forth a, a tradition that that has nothing to do with alcohol, that that maybe has to do with I don't know, family, and and being together, and, right. and you know, celebrating a holiday, you know, and catching up on you know what Aunt Susie's been doing the last year, or what mm-hmm. Uncle Johnny's been doing, you know, the last few months, or how the new job's going for. I'm out of names, but you know some other family <laughs> member. <laughs> um, that that's that's an empowering, I think, message that sometimes parents and, and hosts kind of forget at this point. Um, also related to that, remember if if you're hosting, that that you can ask loved ones, you know, to to manage their behavior a bit. You know, if we have that unruly uncle or aunt that always tends to kind of get out of hand and perhaps you know cause a scene, remember. You don't have to stay in that moment with them. You can ask them to leave, or if you know you're at their particular house, have an exit strategy. Mm-hmm. You know the, the the focus and the and the core point of particularly in early sobriety for for families is remembering that you have options. You know you're not chained to the same patterns and traditions as years past. You have choices now. It's one Correct. of the beautiful things that recovery and sobriety gives families are choices. And, and I encourage parents and, and, and patients as well to, to act on those choices if they start to sense that they're, they're walking down a path that, you know, doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. You know, that, they're, that their radar is saying, you know what, this is going to be a difficult event. Okay, plan it out. You know, plan your entrance, plan your exit, plan to check in with, with other friends or family members that, that you know are healthy and supportive. You know, sometimes just, just that call mid dinner, you know, to a to a friend or another loved one, can can make all the difference in their ability to handle, you know, a very very stressful and sometimes taxing event. Um, so I think those are probably my, my my big suggestions for families is just just remember who you are in that family, and and some of the empowering choices that you have. And I think that lets the family be a team. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the things that gets fractured when someone has been active in the disease of addiction is trust. Mm-hmm. The family may lose trust mm-hmm. in the loved one, but the loved one doesn't trust the family either because mm-hmm. they've kept a lot of secrets from the family. Yes. So the more team that you can have with the family in terms of all working towards being healthy, everybody, and trustworthy, everybody, Mm -hmm. a real important thing, and and having the family, I I love the idea of new traditions. Maybe it's a Christmas or a Hanukkah breakfast instead Mm -hmm. of a dinner, and maybe it's... um, 
a, a very early brunch for Thanksgiving so mm-hmm. that alcohol, mm, if people want to use alcohol, they can do that later in the day at some other location. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the family can have a new a new tradition. And, the, and, and as, as you said earlier, um, Cheryl, talking about focusing on the positives and the strengths. And I think mm-hmm. that is um, that is part of this shift. Not We all know the tragedies. We all know mm-hmm. the scariness. Mm-hmm. But there is also in the family, no matter how sad and how um, how broken things seem to be, there's still a lot of strength and there's love and there's talent. And, and when you build from that, um, people blossom. And that's a, a wonderful thing that happens. Yeah, I think the importance is, is to build that resilience. Yes. Because, um, you know... It's, it's amazing how many people find recovery every day. Mm-hmm. How many people experiment and find their way to never experiment again. And so we want to bring a message of hope. This is the season. And this is the season of hope. And there is hope in recovery. And I think it's important for people to hear that. Um, I think it's also important, and you touched on it, um, Dr. Blank, was the secrets piece. Um you need to be transparent and honest. Part of recovery is learning to be transparent and honest. And it's difficult to teach a young person how to do that because they're either going to be very retrieved about it or they're just going to blurt it out. Right. <laughs> you know, and sometimes the blurting it out is not necessarily a bad thing. It's their way mm-hmm. of getting it out because they're anxious mm-hmm. to share that, you know, hey, I, I've had this issue. Um, it's a problem for me. I'm getting treatment. It's more the response of the family members around them. Mm-hmm. So embrace that honesty. Embrace that honesty because we all know the saying, um, secrets kept can keep us sick. And at the holidays, people will tend to walk around on eggshells around what's been happening in the family. So I think honesty and transparency and all of the things that you mentioned, Dean, are really the hallmarks of setting up a positive approach mm-hmm. to recovery um, and really really coming from that place of we're here because we all care for one another. Mm-hmm. And we're all unique and we're all different in our own way. But can we join on something today that is is going to leave us all feeling as though, you know, we were able to be successful as a family? Because every day families find recovery. And every day families find their way through a crisis. And um, this time of the year, I think we have to be reminded of that. It's very easy to get overwhelmed, but I think the one day at a time is a beautiful thing. So, thank you both for being here today. A great show. You're welcome. And if you would like to know more about Karen, that's www.caron.org, and you can call 678-543-5711, and that will get you Dean directly. And thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week on Detailing Addiction. Thank you. Perhaps you. you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. 
So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.